This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Ahmed Fawad Al-Fatib hasn't set foot in Gaza for two decades. But every day, he picks up his phone and gets transported to a war zone. His whole family lives in Gaza nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, and his brother, Mohammed. WhatsApp is their lifeline. So in terms of actually hearing his voice since October 7th, I've only been able to do that three times. But in terms of communication, we talk almost every other day or every once every three days over WhatsApp, um, both via text and he'll send me voice notes, uh, which enable me to kind of paint a picture of where he's at. Right now, Ahmed's brother Mohammed is in the city of Rafa. He's got a couple of younger kids with him and his wife. They're sleeping in an abandoned coffee shop. Rafa is the southernmost city in Gaza, what many people saw as the last stop in a long flight from Israeli bombardment. Over the last few months, the population here has swelled from 250,000 to more than a million. And Mohammed, he has just been told he should look into relocating again. He came from Khan Yunus prior to that. Um, he, he was in Gaza City. He fled seven different times and pretty much Every time he's fled, the place where he was at was partially or fully hit and destroyed. He must feel like the war is following him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like everyone else in Rafa, Ahmed's family is there because there's no other place left. It's not exactly safe. A couple months back, 28 of his family members got killed when an Israeli strike flattened a family home. But everything's relative, he says. Then, this weekend, things changed. I am joined now by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Mr. Prime Minister, let me ask you right away. What, In an interview on ABC News, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu publicly dug in on a plan to send ground troops into this quasi-safe zone. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying, lose the war. Keep Hamas there. And Hamas's promise to do... And early Sunday morning, Netanyahu sent Israeli defense forces in. They freed two Israeli hostages, and they killed dozens of Gazans. You've said this kind of assault will lead 
to a humanitarian disaster. I noticed when you said that you weren't saying might or could, you were saying will. What makes you so certain? Well, number one is at this point, the transportation methods, the roads that allowed people to leave and head south is largely now either gone, depleted, damaged, or destroyed. So if you wanted to leave, it would be difficult. Precisely. That's part one. Number two is that if an operation in Rafah takes place, that ultimately will take the Rafah crossing out of mission one way or another, just by combat conditions. The lifeline of Gaza, where the majority of the aid has been coming in, will be severed. And so how are you going to have any supplies coming into Gaza at the scale that is needed to sustain a large population? Today on the show, what it's like waiting things out in Rafa. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Tell me about your brother, Muhammad, because when I heard about him, it seems to me what's happened to him after October 7th really just embodies the the constant motion that Gazans have been in since Israel's ground invasion. Like, where was he on October 7th? And then how did that change over the course of the last few months? So he was working, you know, he's a senior program manager for this British NGO in the Gaza Strip. And he was at work when when things unfolded. But soon after, I mean, it became clear that this was going to be a disaster of, of epic proportions. And a week later, um, on October 13th, our, our family home was, was bombed when Mohammed and 33 people were inside the house with no warning, no heads up, no rooftop strikes by smaller drones to give people a chance to leave. 
the building kind of came down on them. And our family's home was on uh, our apartment, rather, is on the second floor. And so they pushed their way out of the rubble. He has a uh, 13-year-old uh, Tala, my, my niece, uh, two-year-old Maria, and one-year-old uh, one baby Ahmed and his wife. And so they pushed their way through the rubble. His car was destroyed. Their properties were destroyed. They didn't manage to get anything out, but they got out. I'll, I'll never forget. He called me immediately. And that was, all. I would say, one of the only times I've ever heard him cry, actually, this entire war is how overwhelmed, but weirdly delighted and happy he was that they were still alive. But then he was also concerned about the other family members still in the building. And so uh, roughly 10 or 15 family members had uh, varying injuries, most of them moderate to severe. We lost my 13-year-old uh, niece, who's, who's my cousin's daughter, uh, Farah. So yes, I mean it was it was a horrendous like beginning to this arduous journey from Gaza City in the north all the way down to Rafa. Yeah, it's so interesting what you're saying because like when you talked about the bombing, you talked about like well there wasn't even like a warning bombing, which <sighs> I hadn't even thought about that. That like oh you just do a little drone bombing to basically tell people could you move before you do a big bomb. Certainly. That was that used to be a common strategy. They call it rooftop knocks. Um, and supposedly some people will cite these as an example of how the IDF is the most moral army in the world because it at least bombs you with little bombs before it bombs you with the big ones. Did they immediately begin moving? Because as you said, their car was destroyed. He went to three different homes in Gaza City. He went to a friend's place, and then that was hit, and they fled again. They went to two different homes, in-laws' uh, apartments, you know, my, his, his wife's family. And it was the norm for them to be in an apartment with 30, 40, at times 45 people at once. They had very limited food. Um, there were times when they found some some grasses that, that that they would boil and they would mix them with with white rice um, just to provide some texture because all they ate was was bread and rice and there was no electricity no water there were times when they would mix seawater with regular water um, which obviously everybody tells you don't do that but he in November made his way out of Gaza City that was the big deal there were thousands of people 3,000 or so that made it out of southern Gaza City through IDF controls. And it was a deadly journey. They had to walk by so many dead people. And some of the folks in the walking convoy, if you will, were injured and they had to leave them behind. And so in November, he made his way out of Gaza City. And then in early January is when they finally made their way to Rafa. You know, over the weekend, when Israel conducted these raids in Rafa and freed two hostages, do you know how that operation went down? Like, did your relatives experience it in some way? Absolutely. I mean, Rafah has not does not see widespread bombardment. Rafah is relatively quiet in comparison to the rest of the Gaza Strip. So what happened was there was just this massive, sudden, just overwhelming amount of fire and bombardment from aerial assets and, and artillery bombardment. Apache gunships 
came over to Rafa and started firing their cannons, which have a particularly terrorizing and distinctive sound, if you will. It echoes across the whole city. So the way he described it, uh, and he texted me when this was happening, was just a sudden massive amount of firepower that lasted for about a couple of hours when the hostage rescue was was taking place. Hmm. And so, unfortunately, like I said, it wasn't just firepower that was applied in the area where the rescue operation took place, which was already in a heavily in a dense urban environment. But it was fire that took place across multiple sectors in Rafa, including areas near the border and far away from the rescue site. Yeah, I was going to ask you why this raid resulted in so many civilian deaths, but I feel like you just answered that question, which is this is a raid that was all over the place all at once and incredibly, um, there's a lot of firepower. Certainly. And, and, and as a realist pragmatist, and I recognize that like some people have a hard time with me saying this, like, I wish like if this operation is going to happen anyway, I wish that a targeted, more kind of specific approach would take place whereby firepower is very specifically applied in specific areas and and, and against specific legitimate military targets or combatants, not the large-scale destructive operations that we've seen in the north and in, in, in the center. Do you feel like this raid is a prelude to what would happen if... Israel launched a full-scale assault on Rafah? Precisely that. In the absence of legitimate options to evacuate the civilian population, to provide alternative safe grounds and safe zones. And that's why I've been pushing for new safe zones and safe areas and new camps. I, I, we need urgent and immediate action because what we saw in the raid is a tiny example of what will be a massively deadly operation that kills thousands of people and exacerbates the already worse, the horrendous misery that, that, that civilians are experiencing. We'll be back after a quick break. We should say Benjamin Netanyahu says the Israeli government has a plan for relocation of civilians in Gaza during any kind of ground operation there. Do we know what that plan is? Well, that's what's so puzzling is, is a plan to evacuate millions of civilians has to be publicly and, 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 and transparently and openly articulated and explained. And it's supposed to give details and provide hope and, and demonstrate seriousness that we're actually thinking about this. Instead, I think these thus far have proven to be empty, blank media talking points that are insincere, that are not coherent, that are not supported by facts on the ground, that are not bolstered by specific and detailed instructions and, and ideas. And instead, it's like, well, you can go back up north. Go back up north to what? Well, the Wall Street Journal had this map, right, where they're, they said, we'll do camps along the water. We'll move people essentially to the West. And I have been calling for some of that, and I believe that some of that can happen. But until the Israeli war cabinet and the 
office of Prime Minister Netanyahu show how alternative aid routes are going to take place. So we need a coherent strategy that shows the role of international NGOs and where the civilians will, will, will go, and even efforts to start erecting some of those sites where the civilians will go to, to start heading there. If the population were to move south the way they have been doing, they'd run straight into Egypt. Do you think it's a possibility that people are then crossing, leaving Gaza? That's not going to happen. I mean, we've seen Egypt time and again, not only politically iterate that it will not allow the mass exodus of Gazans into into Egypt and northern Sinai, but we've seen the bolstering of Egyptian military um, units all along Gaza's border, the Philadelphia corridor. We've seen Egypt building tiers of, of, of walls and barriers to prevent the mass exodus of Gazans. So Egypt is not going to allow such a scenario to take place. And I'm not saying whether or not it's right or wrong. I wish that the civilian population would be evacuated. I think there's a lot more space for maneuvering politically to make sure that we come up with humanitarian solutions. Does it reassure you at all that President Biden has reportedly told Benjamin Netanyahu that a military operation in Rafah shouldn't proceed without a plan to protect the more than one million people in the city? Thus far, I see no evidence that the United States is able to exert meaningful pressure on Israel to modify its the conduct of its military operation. And we've seen leaks and talks of, of how the President Biden and, and the Biden administration is growing frustrated with Benjamin Netanyahu because he's not adjusting his approach. He's not adjusting the conduct of the military operation and, and not coming up with serious plans. Some have even argued that the rescue operation was specifically meant to signal the inevitability of the need to go into Rafah, because that's where a lot of the hostages are believed to be. And the success of the operation was meant to kind of lay a political foundation, if you will, inside Israel and internationally to say, look, we could do this. Precisely. Like, do you want more hostages freed? Precisely. Then we can do this. Precisely. And and again, to be clear, I'm absolutely delighted that these hostages have been released, even though I am devastated that it meant the the death of dozens of Palestinian civilians. And, And that poses a question of, are some lives worth more than others? Shortly after the hostage rescue, Officials from Israel and the U.S. met with Hamas mediators to discuss a possible ceasefire. Those talks are still underway, but Israeli media is already reporting that Netanyahu has told his negotiators not to return. Ahmed says he is hopeful for a ceasefire eventually, but that doesn't make him optimistic. I am concerned that certainly Hamas is not being practical and realistic in its demands. Hamas is desperate after all the death and destruction it has brought upon its people. It's desperate to have something to show for, if you will. And it's desperate to show that it managed to achieve something um, after Gaza is basically destroyed and tens of thousands are dead and, you know, millions are displaced. And so that's what worries me. The Israeli side is not going to make any concessions into Hamas. And I'm also thinking that Hamas, unfortunately, is ruthless in its pursuits, and it is willing to fight on to the last Gazans, and they don't care how many of their own people die. And and 
they are in effect holding their own people hostage in addition to the Israeli hostages. What you've been saying in your writing is that any negotiated settlement, ceasefire, long-term ceasefire, that doesn't plant the seeds to some kind of countervailing force to Hamas is a failure. Absolutely, 1,000%. The Israelis and the Israeli government will think of it as a security problem. For me, as a Gazan with skin in the game, it's an existential problem. We are talking about Gaza ceasing to exist. It's already ceased to exist as we knew it. If we don't create some kind of a, a beginning, a roadmap for political transformation that breaks the deadlock, Basically, this has to be Gaza's final and last war. Gaza, what needs to happen is a negotiated settlement that obviously the first phase is get the hostages out and flood Gaza with humanitarian aid to stop the famine. But most importantly, initiate some kind of a provisional transformative period that allows Gaza to become a hub of economic development, of Palestinian culture, of the art. I have ideas and people who are 10 times smarter than myself have proposed what I believe are viable options and alternatives to endless conflict. And most importantly, I think to having this conflict be kind of the initiation of a new Palestinian state and the recognition uh, by the United States and by the, the, the United Kingdom, recognizing the actual state of Palestine, that I would say is one of the most powerful means of, of sidelining Hamas and, and showing, demonstrating the futility of their, of their, of their efforts and of, of their armed resistance. Before we go, I want to follow up on you personally. Do you know when the next time you'll speak to your brother is, or at least get a text from him? So I'm hoping it'll be tonight. I want to get an update on what's happening with my cousin Isra in the ML hospital. I want to get an update on what his plans are, if he has found a new place that he and his team can go and shelter in, and, and what their plans are for evacuating Rafa. Do you think about what it will take for you to feel like your family is safe? Is there a metric you use? Like, I'll feel like they're safe when I get a picture that shows this, or when my brother says that? I'll feel that my family's safe when this war stops. Even a 45-day ceasefire could, be a, could provide the framework for building kind of a long-term sustainable process for transformation. So I, I will only feel safe when this war is over, when there is a formal cessation of hostilities. Until then, it is a daily and hourly struggle to just always, it's always in the back of my head. And I will say on a daily basis, like when I send that WhatsApp message and I get those two check marks that say it was delivered, I feel moderately better just knowing that his phone wasn't blown up and that his phone is still receiving messages. And even if he doesn't respond for a few hours or how many hours, I'll at least feel like his phone received my message, which means he's still alive. Ahmed, I'm so grateful for your time. I truly appreciate this. Ahmed Fuad Al-Khatib is a Middle East political analyst. And that is our show. 
What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. <laughs>